Thanks for joining us on our walk through the Apostle Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. We'll see the many cultural similarities between the Pacific Northwest and ancient Greece, as well as being challenged in how we are designed to live out the gospel through the local church. In the first mini-series, we will look to the first four chapters where Paul deconstructs the counterfeit places we find meaning and significance and makes his case for why Christ is the greatest person for us to look to for our status and hope for the future. For more information, join us on Sundays in downtown Bellevue at 9 or 11 a.m. or visit www.doxa-church.com. Our scripture today is from 1 Corinthians 1-9. through Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thank you. Well, good morning. Good to be with you. Uh, my name is Jeff Vanderstelt. I'm one of the elders here at Doxa Church. I, with Derek LaFontaine and Alex Gioni and our wives, serve the central region as elders overseeing, uh, caring for the church in Seattle, Bellevue, and Redmond. Those are the three areas that we work in. And so if you're one of those areas, you're from one of those cities, just know I'd love to meet you at some point and get to know you better um, personally. So welcome. It's good to have you with us this morning. As you are aware, um, it's pretty obvious, we're starting 1 Corinthians. Uh, the artist did a great job, again, helping us really enter in to the text of God's Word, and so I'm really thankful for the way they serve our church in so many beautiful ways. Uh, and I'm really excited to walk through this text, not just today, but to look at all of the book of 1 Corinthians over the next uh, five or six months. I really believe we need it as a church uh, we live in a context where uh, we need to continue to be reminded what it looks like to be God's holy set-apart people while we're also very engaged in loving our world and uh, leading people to Jesus. That's our hope. So I'm excited to start this together with all of you. Just so you know, even though it says 1 Corinthians, it's actually Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth. He wrote four letters that we know of, uh, two of which we have. It's called 1 Corinthians because it's the first one you find in your Bible. Uh, there's actually two that you find in your Bible, 1 and 2 Corinthians, but there was one written before this one. This church, just a little background, uh, is about five years old in the writing of this particular letter. It's interesting that we're about five years old as a church, or going into our fifth year this year. So uh, the difference, however, is they literally were five years old in the faith uh, because Paul was sent there 
uh, to start a church five years prior. In fact, I want to just start that reading, uh, the very first verse, to kind of unpack the text with you guys together. Paul says, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle. That word apostle is sent one. So called to be a sent one of Jesus Christ and our brother Sosthenes. We'll come back to that brother in a minute. Uh, but I want to stop and just make sure you know what's going on here. One of the things that's been going on in this church is that they've been questioning Paul's apostleship and his authority and whether or not he really has the authority to speak to them on behalf of God. And so they, they're immediately questioning all the things that Paul's been correcting them with. And so Paul starts with, hey, I want to remind you, I didn't make myself an apostle, God did. Uh, I'm an apostle by the will of God, and I've been apostle sent by Jesus Christ to you in particular. And a little bit of history of this church, Paul was uh, traveling, this is his second missionary journey, he is traveling from Athens, landed in Corinth, and if you know much about Paul's journey, you can read more about this, by the way, in Acts particularly chapter 17 and 18. Uh, 17 was the Athens journey. 18 is now the Corinth uh, arrival and starting the church. Uh, Paul was pretty discouraged in Corinth, or I'm sorry, in Athens and lands in Corinth pretty, pretty discouraged, wants his buddies, Timothy and Silas in particular, to join him so he's not all alone. They eventually do join him in Corinth, but the very first couple that Paul begins to work with is Priscilla and Aquila. Some of you are familiar with their, with their names. Uh, they were converts of Paul. Paul discipled them. They began to help lead that church together, this church in Corinth. Uh, Paul remained in Corinth for 18 months to really establish that church. A little bit of background, he landed in the synagogue where not literally landed, but that's where he started his preaching, uh, as Paul was, pr was prone to do. He would start with the Jews, explain to them how the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, had been pointing to the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and how they had rejected him, and now how, he was, how they should receive him and respond to him in faith. So Paul starts in the synagogue, gets kicked out of the synagogue, we'll come back to that in a minute, and then starts his teaching ministry really next door to the synagogue in a house. So he's there for 18 months, establishing the church there. Now, this church is a mess. We're going to see it. We're going to read about it. Some of you have read through the book already and you see it. Not only were they questioning Paul's apostleship over them, but they were like the shop, uh, the, the, the apostle shop and hop people. Some of you are in the room and you are church hopping and church shopping, right? And you just, it's like you, they, they were doing kind of the same thing with the apostles. Like, who is the most impressive speaker? Who do we like to be connected to? Because there's a sense of like, you know, vicarious uh, importance that we gather by being connected to the most important or prominent or well-spoken apostles. Of course, nobody does that today. Nobody's like, I'm sure you're not here shopping churches and finding out who's the preacher you like the most in the region. You aren't doing that, right? So... Um, we're nothing like them. Um, not only were they doing that, but they were also um, divided in their, in their church itself. Now, this is interesting. There wasn't another church, that, so they weren't doing church hopping. They were just doing apostle shopping. Uh, but they, they had to kind of all gather in the same place there, when they did gather, because there really was one church. There wasn't a bunch of churches to choose from on every corner. Uh, so they were gathering together, and when they gathered together, they were divided. They, they, they had rejected one another. They found ways to not be in association with others. So there was factions within the church. They were bringing people to court and bringing in lawsuits against 
against one another when they couldn't figure it out with each other. They just went to the, the public courts. And in that day, that was a really broken way to do it because those courts were nothing like the kingdom of God. Uh, they could, couldn't even figure out how to solve their problems with each other. I'm sure that's none of our experience either. Um, they also were, would, would go to parties and just get plastered. They were drunken orgies because the, not only were they getting drunk, but the hosts of the parties would provide prostitutes for people to engage in sexual immorality at the parties. These are Christian people going to parties, getting drunk, and sleeping with prostitutes. So that's going on. That's a mess, okay? One brother in particular is involved in an incestual relationship with his mother-in-law. Uh, everyone in the church knows about it. No one wants to talk about it. No one wants to do anything. That's a problem. In their worship gatherings, when they came together in a, in a room like this, they would go ahead of each other and drink as much wine as they could, and they were getting drunk in their worship gatherings. That's why we don't let you drink from this. We're concerned about you doing the same. Just kidding. <laughs> you dip it in. Don't drink that cup. Some of you are like, man, I love this wine here. Um, that's not the point. Um, but they were going ahead of, they were just dishonoring the Lord's Supper. Uh, they were insulting the preachers publicly while they were preaching interrupting them. Some of them were just texting each, I mean, talking to each other while the preacher was preaching. So you guys don't do that. Get off your phones right now. Um, and they were a mess. They're questioning the very gospel, in particular, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, and as a result, Paul needed to confront them. They love themselves more than each other. They love their gifts a lot. They love boasting and how their gifts were better than somebody else's gifts. They love impressing people in the gatherings so that people would look at them instead of uh, Jesus. I mean, just, it was a mess, a mess. And you might ask, well, how did it get that bad? Well, there's a couple things that happened likely. One, I mean, they are only five-year-old Christians. They've only known Jesus and following Jesus for about five years. But we shouldn't discount Paul's really good teaching. I'm sure Paul did a great job of establishing them in the foundations of the, the gospel and teaching them the basic doctrines. What is interesting is they, they send a letter to Paul uh, asking some questions about basic things like marriage and, and uh, worship gatherings and how can we handle ourselves in worship and all that. And, uh, and at the same time, while they're sending the letter about these kind of nominal or kind of very important things, but they're, they're not like sin issue stuff, Chloe's household, who's part of the, the church, she's reporting to Paul, hey, just so you know, that's really a smoke screen to what's really going on. Nobody really wants to face the brokenness in our church. So I'm gonna tell you about all the stuff that you probably do need to confront. So you've got two things going on in this letter. You got Paul addressing the questions they're asking, and then he's addressing the stuff they don't want to talk about. So that's, that's what's happening in the letter. And you're gonna see both of those and even how his tone changes in line with what he has to confront. So why is it like this? Why is it such a mess? Well, I already said it's likely they're young and they're faith, so that's part of it. But they were probably, most likely, being overly influenced by their culture to the point at which their culture was more influential in their life than the gospel. That's probably what was going on. That they, they grew up in this culture. If you know much about Corinth, Corinth was a Greek city that became a Roman colony, had been destroyed in 146 BC by Rome. Rome then took 
the, the rebuilding of the city into their own hands. And if you look at any architectural drawings or historical uh, findings of, of uh, this city, even though it was a Greek city, it looks like a Roman city. So they rebuild it as a Roman city, beautiful architecture, incredible commerce. It's a port city. If you look out in our lobby, you're gonna see lots of posters that say hashtag Seattle and Corinth because there's a lot of similarities between Seattle and Corinth, a port city, lots of commerce, tons of architectural beauty, art. Uh, people are coming from all over the place to this particular city. It's one of the biggest cities in Europe. And so there's, it's, it's influential. It's not just architecturally and artistically influential. It's politically influential. It's religiously influential. It's a cultural kind of landing point for Europe in terms of what's shaping so much of the surrounding world. And so you can just imagine if you grew up in that and then you come to faith in Jesus, you still have a whole bunch of your old stuff that you haven't dealt with. Some of you are brand new Christians here and I've, I've interacted with some of you who are brand new to the faith and you're like, there's some things, Jeff, you teach that are just like countercultural. They're not like what I was brought up with and I'm having a hard time with them. I don't know if I can agree with it or affirm it. And I've seen some people come to faith and walk away from the faith because they hear the teaching of God's word and they just don't want to accept it. And that's, that's probably what was going on is that as they're facing their background and they're surrounded by a culture that, put, that potentially is constantly saying the opposite of what God's word says to them about lifestyle choices and practices and how we engage with people, they just kind of get subsumed by the culture. They're just becoming like the culture they live in. One of the most prominent fixtures in uh, Corinth was a Greek temple uh, to Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love, that temple had over 1,000 priestesses who served as prostitutes for kind of like basically idolatrous worship through sexual immorality. Uh, so you can imagine if that's like the pinnacle of your city and everybody's engaging in some form of worship that is very broken to the gods of this world, you're gonna be affected by that. You're gonna be potentially informed by that. And if you're not careful, you're gonna be conformed to that. Seattle and Corinth are kind of similar, aren't they? And when you think about I mean, it's a, this, this region's a great region to live in. I love living where we live. I love the beauty of the east side and the city of Seattle, and some of you live in South Seattle. I took my son up to Funko and Everett yesterday. To, like, you guys ever been there? You get those little pop figures. Like, the, like that came out of Everett. Uh, can anything good come out of Everett? And I guess it can. Um, this is a great region to live in. There's beauty, there's art, there's... There's commerce, it's growing like crazy. It's where the fastest growing city in the, in the United States right now, this greater Seattle is. And so it's a great place to live, but it's also very, very broken. And as we go through the letter of, from Paul to the church in Corinth this year, I want you to do two things. One, I want you to ask, how am I being deformed in my faith or practices by the culture I'm living in? How is it deforming them? How, is, how am I being conformed to the, the world instead of conformed to the likeness of Christ? So that's the first question. I want you to really ask yourself that as we keep going through this letter. Second, I want you to ask, how can I still intentionally engage in this place we live in with the grace and the love and the kindness and the joy of Christ and the gospel, that there's a, a world that desperately needs to meet Jesus. And so we don't want to remove ourselves from it, but we want to be a distinct people set apart for Jesus in it. 
So I want you to be asking those two questions. That's what Paul wants to do with the church in Corinth. He wants to help them learn how to live into the fullness of who God saved them to be and not disengage from the world that desperately needs the good news of Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're gonna be asking ourselves for six months. How do we do this? Now, it is interesting that Paul uh, includes in his greeting this brother named Sosthenes. And you, know, you always want to pay attention to a greeting from Paul, especially because when he writes his letters and he includes somebody in the letter, there's a reason for it. It's not just like a, a haphazard thing. He thought very carefully about why he wanted to include Sosthenes in this letter. Now, if you go to Acts 18, you'll find out a little bit more about this brother. He was a synagogue leader who, with the Jews, when Paul came in and started to teach at the synagogue, drove Paul out. He's also the one who brought Paul to the proconsul, the head of basically the tribunal, uh, which is their court, the Roman court system. They brought Paul to Galileo to try Paul and say, you know, what he's doing is illegal. We want him, uh, you know, punished. And of course, the Roman government's like, what are you talking about? We don't care about what you're doing. It's you Jews. Do what you want to do. Like worship the way you want to worship. If you don't like it, you deal with it but it pretty much basically humiliates Sosthenes in front of all the Jewish people that are following him as a synagogue leader. Now, if you don't know what a synagogue is, that's kind of the Jewish worship center where they get instruction in God's word and, and worship God together as Jews. So here, here Sosthenes, the, re, the religious leader, is publicly humiliated. The Jews are embarrassed in this context. And so what do they do? They take Sosthenes out and they beat him. Okay? Now... Just imagine what's going on. Your own people who used to lead in the synagogue have rejected you, beaten you up. You're at home nursing your wounds likely with your family, both physical and psychological, and you're all alone. You got no one with you anymore. You're isolated. It would not surprise me, nor would it surprise most theologians who try to figure out why is Sosthenes in here. It would not surprise me if the apostle Paul was the one who went to his house expressed sympathy and care, received him in fellowship, and extended the kind of grace that he himself, Paul, had received when he persecuted the church and should have been rejected but was received by the brothers in Christ. It wouldn't surprise me if that's what happened. And the reason why I say that is because Paul gives this instruction in Romans 12, when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure so it would not surprise me if Paul now is putting Sosthenes' name in the letter to go, I, I, you all know what you did to this brother, and you know that he was restored through the grace of God to fellowship, that I welcomed him and cared for him and loved him and extended grace to him, and now you know that he's part of the church because of the grace of God as you are as well, so I'm going to put his name in there because not only do, do you need to know you need grace, but you need to know this brother knows you need grace. And so there's almost a weightiness in putting his name there to say, I'm gonna begin the letter with your need for grace. I'm gonna show the example of how I gave grace. And then I'm gonna call you to receive God's grace and stand in that grace. That's probably what's going on. I would also bet he's including his name because they might go, you know, Paul, you haven't been here in a while. You don't know what's going on anymore. And he can go, yeah, I've talked to Sosthenes. I know what's going on. He knows you better than anybody else. 
So uh, we're not making this stuff up and I get what you need right now. So that's likely what's happening. But I love little things like that. Some of you are like, that was a cool little piece of new information I got today. I hope that helps you in what I'm about to talk about because what we're gonna talk about is the idea that Paul wants them to understand it's all about grace. Everything that they've received has been a gift of God. And they're gonna need grace in order to receive the hard words Paul's about to say. Okay, before we get to that, which is coming next week, let's keep going in the text. Verse two, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both both their Lord and ours. I don't know if you find this unbelievably ironic, but the, the most kind of the worst sinners you can find, Paul is calling saints. That's beautiful. In fact, that's the beauty of the gospel is that the gospel says God doesn't treat you or even call you according to your own sin. He doesn't identify you with your behavior, but rather he lets you be identified with his son's behavior, Jesus Christ. And in Christ, you, instead of being called a sinner, are being called a saint. I love the fact the apostle Paul doesn't go, okay, to all the sinners in Corinth, I'm gonna talk to you about your sin. No, he goes, to all the saints called by God. I mean, this is the Corinthians. He's calling them saints. See, a lot of us think, you know, saint is someone like, you know, really highbrow behavior. You know, you go, man, that guy is such a saint. That girl is such a saint. And that's how we see sainthood. We see sainthood as you earn it through your good behavior. Paul is saying, no, sainthood has nothing to do with your behavior. It's about his behavior. He called you. He made you saints. See, I, I don't know if you know this. If you're not yet a Christian, I want to just clarify something for you that we believe as Christians. We believe that if our faith is in Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, that we are what theologians called in union with Christ. Now, what does in union with Christ mean? To be in union with Christ. So if your faith is in Jesus' life lived perfectly before God the Father as righteousness, his death given as our forgiveness, him dying for, for our sins, his burial as the means by which he puts sin and death in the grave and victoriously leaves it there in his resurrection. If we believe that, we're, we're, our faith is in that, then we are called people who are in union with Christ. And in union with Christ, it's the same as marriage. Okay? So when my wife married me, we became one flesh, the Bible says. That meant everything that's mine is now hers, including my student debt. So that, that's what happened, okay? Now some of you get married and you do all kinds of prenuptials, or like, we're keeping our accounts separate, we're keeping everything separate. That's not biblical view of marriage, just to be clear. The biblical view of marriage, which really isn't about us, but about God, and telling his story of how he became one with us through Christ, is meant to show that in Christ, you and I get to be co-heirs of everything that belongs to Jesus. So by faith in Christ, we are in union with Christ, which means Jesus' righteousness is our righteousness. Jesus' forgiveness forgives our sins. Jesus takes on our sin, we get his righteousness, he buries our sin in the grave, leaves it there, and we become holy people before God Almighty. That's amazing. I mean, if you just don't, if you just kind of just sit on that and think, I am in union with Jesus Christ and everything that's true of Jesus is now in Jesus true of me. That not only am I forgiven, I'm loved, I'm accepted, I'm holy. When was the last time you woke up and said, I'm a saint? 
Now, let me ask, if you believed you were a saint, would you live differently? The way that works is the Bible calls us to believe the indicatives, which is what is true no matter what you do, so that we'll live out the imperatives, which is what you do if you believe it's true. Okay, that's that, that, those are indicatives, are statements about who God is, what he's done, who we are. Imperatives are the commands of scripture. And they always, God always wants us to get the order right. We start with God, his work, and our new identity. In this case, God is holy, sent his holy son to be for us a holy sacrifice so that we in Christ become holy people so that we will live holy lives. The outcome of holiness has to be preceded by the work of God to make us holy. That makes sense? So when we talk about the gospel, we're talking about a good news story of God doing a work to make us a different people that we then live into, okay? And that, that's what's going on here. Paul is saying, Corinthian church, I know you look like a bunch of sinners, but you're saints because of God's calling, because of his work in Christ Jesus, because later on at the end, because of your fellowship with Christ, which is another way of saying your union with Christ. So, He's saying that to them, but I want you to hear this. He's saying it to you who are in Christ. Listen to what he says. Called to be saints together with all those who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. What Paul is saying is this letter is for you today, doxa. This is our letter. This isn't just a culturally kind of restricted letter that's only good for people a long, long time ago. This is meant to be applied to us today. And I am going to do that, and so will the others who share in the teaching with me over the next five and a half months. We are not going to mince words, and we're not going to make it easily easy to accept. We're going to accept whatever God has for us, because we believe he's spoken through the Apostle Paul, not just to the Corinthian church, but to Doxa Church. Amen? There's some hard words that are going to be coming. We need to be prepared in our hearts to receive them, which is why Paul starts with grace. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Peace to you or shalom was a standard Jewish greeting. Greeks would have expected charin, which is the word hail. Paul uses a word that sounds like that, kari, or I'm sorry, the Greek word is karin. He uses the word, word karis, which is the word for grace. So he says, grace to you and peace. And he's do, what he's doing is he's saying, I've got a greeting that's Jewish and I've got a greeting that's, that's Greek. And I, I'm using both to show that later when I call you to unity, that I expect you to act like one family. Okay, I'm gonna identify with both of you. And the other thing he's doing is he's laying down a pretty significant theological pre- premises, uh, premise that he's saying, There's two huge themes here, one grace, one peace. And he wants us to understand, you and I cannot have peace with God apart from the grace of God. We cannot come into relationship with God who is holy with our sin unless our sin has been dealt with. And our sin has been dealt with by the grace of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So that it is by grace through faith that we are saved, not by our own works. So then we can come to God with his grace to be in relationship, which is peace. So grace and peace to you. That's what's going on in this greeting. That's a pretty significant statement. Grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, not only is he saying that so that we would know that our standing with God is peace, reconciled in relationship through the grace of God, but we would also then extend grace to one another so that we could have peace with one another as well. Because he's gonna have to deal with all their problems and all their sin. And if they don't understand they've already received grace and have peace with God, then they won't give grace and have peace with one another. That makes sense? We've said this a lot here. Whatever God does to you, he intends to do through you. That's what Paul is doing in this greeting. Okay, we'll keep moving forward. 
Verse four, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way, you are enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul generally started his letters, it was pretty much the practice to offer thanksgiving in the letter, but Paul, if you notice, is being very diplomatic here. He doesn't say, I always thank God for your faith. I always thank God for your love. I always thank God for your hope. I always thank God for your partnership with me in the gospel. No, he doesn't say any of those because that would be a lie. Because there isn't faith, there isn't hope, there isn't, there isn't love, there isn't partnership in the gospel in the Corinthian church. So what does, he thank, what does he thank God for? God's grace. Don't miss that. He says, I always thank God for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. In other words, he's saying, I don't have anything in you and what you've done that I can really brag on right now. Yeah, I got God's grace. That's what I got for you. It's kind of like, you know, you know, how many parents here? Do you, do you remember your kid bringing like the little, some of you are school teachers, you know, you work with elementary kids. They bring their first picture to you and you're like, oh, it's a dog. It's beautiful. And they're like, no, dad, that's you. And then you're like, okay, now how do I back out of this one? You know, like, oh, you use nice colors. I like your lines. You know, you're just trying to find anything you can to praise. That's the Apostle Paul right now, right? Or it's like, it's like you know, one of you is a stay-at-home parent and your kid was just rebellious all day long and the other one comes home at dinner time, he gets the report and has to sit down at the dinner table and say, you know, and I'll, I'll speak from my case because I'm a man. So if I was with Janie and I, I'd go like, um, so buddy, um, all I've got to say to you is you should really be thankful that mom is kind because I got nothing to praise you about today. In fact, you should really thank God that she's kind because you should be dead right now, right? Like the day you live doesn't deserve you staying in bed tonight without being killed, okay? That's almost like what Paul's saying, just to be clear. It's like, okay, I don't have much but the grace of God, but don't miss it. The grace of God is what it's all about. That's what I love. It's like, Paul's like, I'm praising God's grace in your life. Even in the midst of all the mess, God has been gracious to you. So if I'm gonna brag on anything, I'm bragging on him. I was with a, a leader this last week who was wrestling through how to mark a particular time in their church's history. It's an older church. They want to honor someone who was a, a pastor in the early years of it, but who really had to be stepped out of ministry because of his own sin. And he said, how do, you, how do we honor him? Should we? I don't know. And and I, I said to him, I don't know how to answer that. In fact, I probably need some time to pray because I'll probably say the wrong thing. And because uh, I, I, I'll be honest, I, I, I feel the weight of this position and I, I, it's, it, I don't ever want to mishandle the authority God gives me. And so I'm sober by that. So I want to be slow to speak whenever somebody asks me something like that. And, and I, 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 I was like, God gave me a word. I said, I, I got something. I don't know if this is for you. I mean, literally, as soon as I said, I want to answer, I had this come to my head. And I said, this may be for you. It may not be you. Just reject if it's not. I said, I don't think that you honor the man. You honor God. In fact, whether it was good or bad, you should always honor the work of God because at the end of the day, it's not us that did it, but God who did it. And he said, that, that is from God. I need to do that. We need to honor God's work through this man for God's glory. And the re reason why I say this is because the Bible is full of that. 
I mean, I'm doing my read-through right now. I'm in, you know, Genesis just got through the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. You get done with that and you're like, so those are the fathers of the faith? Abraham pimps out his wife twice. Isaac follows in suit. Jacob is a deceiver and a liar and gets the blessing? Are you kidding me? Like, that's it? One of my friends says this often, God loves to draw straight lines with crooked sticks. That is so true, right? Like, I'm a mess. I always love it when people get, I don't like this actually, so, but I kind of like it. Um, when people get to know me, they're like, why, are you, why do people ask you to go speak? Like, don't they know who you are? And then you realize they saw all my mess. And when they saw my mess, they realize I'm no different than anybody else. And I need the grace of God just like anybody else. And all of us are gonna fall. And we can point the finger and say how bad Corinth was, but we should point the finger back at ourselves and go, look at how much I mess up. Look at how much I need grace. And if we're not for the grace of God, we would have no hope. We would have no church. Let's be clear if it weren't for God's grace. And so Paul is laying a foundation of grace before he confronts their sin because it's all about grace. And grace doesn't just give, grace forgives and grace sustains. Those are the three things I wanna close up our message with. First of all, God's grace gives. Paul's really clear. God has enriched you in speech. Why is he doing that? Because he's gonna confront all their desire to find the best speakers. And he wants them to understand that anybody who can speak well, it was just a gift from God. So stop being impressed with man and start being impressed with the one who gives you the ability to speak. He also says you've been enriched with all knowledge. And he's gonna confront their foolish thinking that somehow getting better education or being full of the world's wisdom makes you more impressive before everybody else when really the gospel looks like foolishness to the world. We're gonna get to that in a bit. He also says you're not lacking in any of the spiritual gifts. It's amazing. God has graciously given you every gift in abundance. Your church has all they need to do everything God's called it to do. But they're so consumed with performance and status and who has which gift and who performs well with the gift. And so Paul's going, hey, even your ability to use the gift is God's grace. So stop being impressed with yourself. Stop boasting in your ability. Stop putting others down because you're better at something than they are. And he wants them to see afresh that they have only got what they've got because God has been gracious. That's it. I remember years ago, I went to Caleb's uh, field day in elementary in Tacoma and one of the things they were doing was a tug of war, and I don't know why they did this, but they did the boys against the girls, and the boys were losing. And so, you know, I mean, that's probably good for my son's, you know, humility, but I, I think ego was getting a little bruised while it was happening, and, and ladies, I'm not trying to make this a men-woman thing, just don't do that for me, just listen to the story. Uh, and, uh, and so the guy, I don't know what happened, the teacher said, hey, you guys wanna help? So this was not fair, but all the guy leaders got with the guys, Little boys. Now, the, the women leaders got with the, the girls, and, and the guys won. And all these boys are like, yeah, we killed you. And they're just like sticking in the girl's face. I'm like, you are losing, <laughs> right? This is what we do to God all the time, man. I am awesome. Look at what I've done. He's going, you were losing. And I came and I tugged the rope. That's what I did. God tugged the rope. He rescued you from sin. He pulled you out of the muck and the mire, we're told in Psalms. Like, you didn't do anything. You just received grace to rescue you from your sin. 
And then you receive grace in the spirit to have gifts in the spirit to do things on God's behalf that are all his gifts and all his power. And then we're on the other side of the rope going, yeah, look what we did. He's going, no, you didn't do it. Jesus is really clear, apart from me, John 15, you can do nothing. And so we ought to just sit back and go, God, apart from you giving us grace and gifts and abilities and all these things, we've got nothing. We've done nothing. It's all you. And you know what? If you believe that, then you can hear a rebuke, a correction. Because you see, if you think you are who you are because of everything you've done well, then when someone tells you you did something wrong, you can't handle it because they're confronting your whole identity because your whole identity is in your works instead of his. And if they're in your works, I promise you, you're going to fall. And when people correct you, you're gonna get really defensive and insecure because everything about you, your status, your identity, your significance is in your performance. And when someone corrects you in your sin, you're just gonna push back because you're gonna go, that's what I am. What I do is who I am, not who he is is what I am. So the, the Corinthians, in order to hear all the rebukes that Paul's got for them, needed to understand grace. Because grace doesn't just give, it also forgives. I just want you to stop and, and think about this When's the last time somebody corrected you or rebuked you? And how did you respond? Now, some of you are going like, no one ever corrects me and rebukes me. That's probably because they got tired of talking to you. Proverbs says that you rebuke a scoffer and you just get abuse poured on you. And some of you, because you're not rested in the gospel of God's grace, that your performance is not what makes you who you are, that your job is not what makes you who you are, that your obedience isn't what makes you who you are. It's God's grace in the work and person of Jesus Christ and his performance is what you are. Because you don't really rest in that, when someone confronts you, you heap abuse on them. Because they're confronting your idol. They're confronting your identity. They're basically tearing down in your mind what makes you you. But if you know the grace of God in Christ Jesus, you go, bring it on. Bring it on. I'm a holy one of God. I stand before God as righteous and holy and accepted. I'm forgiven of all my sin. You got nothing that can tear that down. Even my own sin can't tear that down. And see what that makes you? It makes you humble. When you're humbled by the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ that not just gives but forgives, then, then someone can bring a hard word. You can go, you know what? You don't know the half of it. If you knew who I really was, you'd have a lot more to say. So it's likely you got some truth to bring me. And even if you don't, I probably should still listen. And so then we become open people who let people speak into our lives. We become open people who confess our sin one to another. We don't have to pretend. We don't have to make up. We don't have to live behind the facade that we have it all together. We don't have it all together. The gospel tells you you don't have it all together. To just accept Jesus, you have to admit you don't have it all together. But if you believe that and receive that, not only are you humble, but you're bold because you can humbly accept correction and you can boldly repent of your sin. And when you see it, you go, oh yeah, that's right, man. I was a real jerk. And in your heart, you're like, I'm forgiven, I'm accepted. God knew that when he sent Jesus to the cross. He knew what I would do to my brother. He already cried out for my forgiveness before I even knew I would do it. So now I'm forgiven and I can receive this rebuke and then I can own it. I can say, man, because I already know I'm forgiven, I can hear this from you. And now I can say, brother, I'm so sorry. In my sin, I hurt you. Would you forgive me? So then I receive humbly and I repent boldly. And there's freedom in that. It's beautiful. 
when we live that way with each other. Brother, uh, brothers and sisters, family, I want you to hear, the elders had to do that to me this last year more than once, to be clear. They had to confront me in some of my own fears and insecurities and areas that I've sinned against my brothers. And I'm so thankful they believe the gospel is strong enough to let me handle a rebuke. To be able to sit in that and receive it and then the grace to know that I'm forgiven and a safe place in which I can confess and then we can be restored in relationship. There's nothing more beautiful than that. It's so beautiful and I'm so thankful for grace that God has given me. Not just to gift me to do this work but to forgive me for when I fall short of the glory of God in my own sin. Amen? We're gonna need this grace. I'm telling you, if you get into missional community, people are gonna offend you. Some of you, that's why you're not in it. You're like, yeah, people. They're just difficult. And everyone's going like, yeah, you are too. Right? Stop thinking so highly of yourself. We're gonna need it. If we're gonna be in DNA groups where three or four men or three or four women or even two, like I, my DNA group is three guys. I think that sometimes that works better for guys because guys just have a hard time sharing their hearts and the bigger it gets, the more they hide. In your DNA groups, if you have people who really know you and you start to honestly share your life with them, you're gonna have to believe in grace, man. You're gonna have to believe the gospel to confess your sin to each other. You're gonna have to, if you're gonna take stuff that you've been hiding for a long time out of the open, you're gonna have to believe the gospel is sufficient and the grace of God is enough. I tell, I tell my kids all the time, God already knows what you did and he's already forgiven you at the cross so you have no reason to hide your sin from me and you have no reason to, to be afraid to confess it to your brother or sister if you've hurt them. And so I just keep assuring them of the grace of God that allows them to even confess their sin and then frees them from needing to defend themselves because they have an advocate before God the Father and his name is Jesus Christ. I promise you over the next five months, as we go through Corinthians together, you're going to need grace. Jessica, my assistant, as I was sharing with her, kind of, I like to verbally process the message, and she says, so this one's gonna be kind of like the nice one, eh? The nice message, seems like you're gonna be just talking about grace and you know, soft glove type stuff. I said, yeah, they're gonna need it for the rest of the messages. <laughs> and I mean that. We've got some things that we've gotta face. Some of you are divided. You're, you're not in a relationship with people and you refuse to forgive. Uh, you're gonna need the grace of God to forgive them and be reunited and reconciled. Some of you, when we talk about selfishness and always wanting to be right and have your way, you're gonna have to learn how to consider others more important than yourself and humbly serve people and be willing to be wrong. When we talk about sexual immorality, there's some of you who are living in, in sexual immorality right now and we're gonna talk very directly and frankly about it and you will need God's grace to repent of your unholy lifestyle. Some of you will come to the gathering and you worship yourself here because you're primarily here to say what's in it for me. You're not here to serve others, you're not here to bless others, you're not here to figure out how to use your gift for the building up of the saints, you're just using it for yourself and you're gonna need God's grace. Some of you like the service because it plays to your preferences and when it doesn't, you, you, you don't like it. This isn't about you. It's about him. And you'll have to repent of that. You'll need God's grace. I will need God's grace to preach it. Tim will need God's grace. Donald will need God's grace. Alex will need God's grace to preach it. 
We won't be able to preach this apart from belief that God's grace is sufficient to both give us what we need and to forgive us for where we fall short. And then we have to have an absolute confidence that the grace of God will keep us till the end. Listen to what Paul says as he closes his greeting. Who will sustain you, referring to God? Because grace sustains. Who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ? God is faithful. Parentheses, you're not. That's Paul's way of saying, even when you and I are unfaithful, God is always faithful. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Here's, here's the really good news, family. If God can say this about the Corinthian church, if Paul, led by the Holy Spirit, can write this down and say, God is faithful when you're not, God will keep you guiltless till the end. He's gonna confront all their sin and he's still saying they're guiltless. How is that possible? Because of their fellowship with Jesus Christ, their union with the one who makes them guiltless. And what Paul is saying is no matter how many times we fail, no matter how messed up we might be as a church, no matter how unfaithful we might be to obey all of God's commands, God is faithful, God is gracious, and his grace will sustain us guiltless in the end. That's amazing. To know one day we're gonna stand before a holy God and God, because of Jesus Christ, will hold us guiltless is the greatest hope any of us have. Can I hear an amen to that? It's all grace. If we don't believe that, we won't be able to hear the rest of the messages. That's what we're starting here. Paul wants to lay a foundation of what's necessary for us to receive what's coming. Let's pray that God makes us able, by his grace, to receive and respond, humbly and boldly. Father, we come to you and we thank you for grace unmerited favor, unmerited favor from God, unmerited favor that gives us gifts and resources we don't deserve. Unmerited favor that will keep us to the end and enable us to stand before you guiltless even though we know we have sinned. For that, we will forever praise you You alone are faithful. You alone are righteous. You alone are holy. You alone are worthy of all praise, glory, and honor. And so we will boast only in your name, Jesus Christ, and not in ours. And that itself is grace that we can proclaim you over us because we will never measure up. Help us as we enter into the series to receive what you have for us. Help us to become the people you intend us to be Continue to rescue us from putting our trust in anything other than you and your grace. We love you, we thank you, we praise you in Jesus' name, amen.